Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. I am so excited for today's episode. It is our quarterly economic and M&A update. If you've not been following these, we are rolling these out once a quarter now with our partners, ITR Economics, Butcher Joseph, as well as uh, a special guest today, uh, John Thwing from Live Oak. But just to give everybody an overview of why I'm doing this is I am so passionate about getting practical information that is actionable and actually relevant to the middle market privately held entrepreneurs because we actually have to pay payroll, we have to pay our obligations, and we have to actually move the needle to create an asset to make the whole journey of owning and running a company worth it. And I have found that ITR Economics has absolutely nailed this as far as providing information to us all, the leading indicators, the rates of change, the business cycles, and the accuracy of their forecasting is insane. So if you've been following me for a long time, I've been a huge proponent over the last few years of Ray Dalio. I read his uh, Changing World Order three times, actually, about the macroeconomic view. And honestly, what I can say is the ITR economics folks, Brian and Alan Bolio, what they've written behind their books of the make your move and then the prosperity and the age of decline is the best I've ever seen. And it's truly next level. And it's actually practical and actionable compared to Dalio talks a lot in theory. This is everything that you need to predict the future and how you should make the moves in your company. These books just snap into clear view how everything is shaking up and what to be doing between now and 2030. Because if you've not been following ITR, They've got their whole concept of the 2030 Great Depression. Not concept, but what they're predicting and why. And prosperity in the age of decline is literally a rule book and playbook of how to actually make your move, navigate the waters that are anything but calm anymore. And, you know, business is tough. I mean, the last 14 years have been easy money. And now we have the ground constantly moving, whether it's interest rates, supply chain issues, geopolitical issues. I mean, my gosh. But instead of being subjective, let's be objective and the leading indicators, the rates of change and the business cycles that ITR and Brian is constantly hammering home are going to be more important than ever as you're trying to navigate these waters. I just have to thank our partners at ITR Economics, Lindsay and Kimberly and Brian and everybody has been so fantastic in the partnership as we've been rolling out and doing these quarterly updates. Their time is valuable. And they're very, very sought after because of their accuracy. For 70 years, they've been predicting the future forecast, and then they publish how well they did against their own predictions, and they have been ranking up at 94.7% accuracy. So I highly recommend doing a couple of things. One is go pick out their books, but I also in the show notes below, we have the ITR Economics free economic updates go sign up for their updates. They have the updates on the 2030 Great Depression, their methodology and the trends talk. And they have uh, little podcast episodes that come out about what's going on with the Fed. So their interpretation of the Fed results, as well as um, 
other kind of updates that I highly recommend. I also have to thank Butcher Joseph, Jeff Butner's back on the show, and we're going to be hammering home what is going on in the landscape of M&A. So both Brian on, at ITR and Jeff, we're both talking about over the last 90 days, what happened? Well, there's been a bunch of bank failures. We've got a lot of geopolitical issues going on. Is there anything changing about the prediction of the 2030 Great Depression? But also to then Jeff at Butcher Joseph, how is the interest rates and the inflation, all the things we've been dealing with? impacting debt to equity ratios, M&A volume, transaction sizes, deal structures like earnouts, different kind of valuation averages between ESOPs, private equity strategics. So we cover a lot of ground in those first two segments. And then on the third segment, I've got a uh, dear friend of mine back on the show, John Thwing. Who, oh, John Thwing is at Live Oak which is the largest SBA lender in the country. And the reason I was excited to have him back on the show is because it's actually been like years since he was on the show. But John is seriously one of the most intelligent commercial bankers I've met. And John is on to talk about the new standard operating procedures and the new rules that were rolled out for the SBA loans and the, the new flexibility because there's talk about opening up flexibility from uh, keeping ownership, not having to leave your job if you actually have a buyer that funded with an SBA. So there's a lot of opening of flexibility, but banks are not necessarily going to guarantee that what the SBA rolled out is going to be underwritten and each bank is going to interpret them differently. So John's here on the show today to talk us about his interpretation of it and things to be thinking about while you're talking to your different bankers and what it might do for you and your future borrowing capacity and how the SBA specifically that one specific tool might fit into your funding or your acquisition strategy or a buyer or whatever it might be. So lots to, to cover, uh, lots, lots to talk about, and lots of ground to cover today. Again, go check out ITR's economic updates. Thanks everybody for tuning in. And I really hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Arcona's Fractional CFO Services. Arcona's Fractional CFOs integrate into your management team and assume the responsibility of the CFO. They become your strategic financial partner to help you run the business, create your value growth plan, and build the financial roadmap to the valuation you want to achieve. Ryan, how are you today? I am well, Ryan. How are you doing? I, I think I want to ask you if you could repeat what you would do, the, the comment you said. I've said, you've been, uh, you've been on your toes and you, I said, how's my favorite economist? And you said, what, what was your response? I, I don't remember exactly. It's just this economy is having fun with me right now. Oh, it is tearing man. me up, man. So, yeah, I was just going to say, like, since the last time we talked, I thought we had a lot to talk about last time. And we've had a couple banks that have been in the news. We've been uh, uh, we've been keeping ourselves busy. So I'm trying to think of how do you even want to start? I'm trying to think of what uh, the banking sector I know has been in turmoil since we had a conversation last. And I was just letting you know. Um, I'd, I picked up and consumed both your books again since we talked last. So I've got your material hot off the press in my in my mind. But um, maybe kind of starting from kind of your guys's thoughts as far as maybe like with the banking sector, how do you want to start there or uh, any place in particular you want to pull the thread? Yeah, I think the banking sector is a is a logical place to start. I mean, the, we had three banks fail now and all three of them had something uh, in common. And that is they were very focused in terms of uh, who they lent money to, they were all had very high percentages in terms of deposits that were not FDIC covered. And they were all very um, called bond banks. I mean, 
because their loan portfolio is so low, they overinvested in bonds. Interest rates go up, and you know, as um, um, <laughs> Buffett once said, "There's nothing like the tide going out to find mm. out who's swimming without a bathing suit." So now we know who is swimming without a bathing suit. We we have a, an economist on staff that used to work at the Fed. So she's gotten some really good data that I didn't even know existed. Um, and the good news there is um, the really bad banks like SVB and First Republic, um, they're a very small minority. Mm. Um, and you get into some pretty healthy-looking banks pretty quickly uh, by a couple of different metrics, which is really encouraging. But two things uh, are uppermost in our mind, though, when it comes to the banks. One, even before the banking issues, credit conditions are already tightening. Now these small regional banks, there's a comma there, uh, are tightening up lending even more, uh, particularly as their stock prices crash. They, they <laughs> tend to go hand in hand. Um, and that's going to make things more difficult for people who didn't look out ahead and make sure that their, their line of credit was already where it needed to be. They didn't take our advice and assess their cash flow mm -hmm. uh, and what their cash needs were going to be. They should have been doing that six months ago, mm -hmm. uh, but not everybody did, obviously. So there's going to be some businesses caught up short, and mm -hmm. that could be your supplier, it could be your customer, it could be you. Either way, it's not going to be pleasant. Well, and I can, I, we can see that inside of our clients, Brian, with the, the demand as the demand and revenue. And I love, I love it. All you guys had, like the way you guys worded it in the book was see the future before it hits your income statement. I'm like, Oh my God, is that just the most beautiful statement ever? <laughs> <laughs> and you guys were talking about in, uh, in, I think it was in the B cycle and then the, in the C one of like where you want to start looking at when the, like lending's, uh, more, uh, more flexible with lower rates and, you know, using your cash to be able to anticipate the, you know, the C and D uh, um, cycles, but, you know, obviously preserving your balance sheet and your cash flow statement. But I, I want to go before we kind of go into the, the cycles and the different sectors, Brian, is, you know, what I like, what I found super fascinating about the SVB bank and these banks is the, uh, you know, when they have the mismatch of their short-term versus the long-term investments, can you maybe help the audience better understand that. Cause like, it, and the reason I'm asking about this, Brian, is I think about how that mismatch of like someone having that many bonds that aren't yielding that much and they don't have liquidity. And I think about real estate, commercial real estate. And then I also think about private equity, but we don't see those in the news because they're not as public. And I feel like it's the same kind of mismatch potentially that's kind of underneath there. And I might be, I don't want to, I don't want to think that if it's, you know, out of warrant, if it's not warranted, but I'm kind of just maybe explaining kind of the mismatch. I think people understand that would be very helpful. The mismatch was, uh, and it was accurately described at the time, it was a bad business plan, poorly executed. Uh, they <laughs> so, <laughs> that explains that. You mentioned commercial real estate, and that was the second uh, nugget I was going to bring up in connection with the banks. You know, we're looking at uh, the vacancy rates very, very carefully in different slices of commercial real estate. And the only one that worries us right now is office space. We have not gone back into the office. Mm -hmm. uh, and you see it, I mean, San Francisco is the, uh, the worst case, right? Um, and we're going to see it in parts of Manhattan um, and other 
major cities in the in the in the northern part of our country. And Brian, I saw the the uh, the San Francisco Bank or not San Francisco Bank, the San Francisco uh, article about that one building that was valued at like three hundred million. Now it's going for auction for sixty million. And same week that I saw, because I'm in Minnesota here, the IDS Tower. I saw the numbers on that one. I was like, oh my God, I can't even imagine being the person responsible for trying to refi that loan with the, the revenues that aren't there. And I don't know if they took a margin loan against it, but the equity just disappeared on that thing in like four years. Oh yeah. And the banks are going to get stuck holding those keys, right? What mm-hmm. are they going to do with them? They're going to have a fire sale and there's going to be some major haircuts being taken. Fortunately, it isn't every city. And it is mainly the northern cities or the high-tech cities, and you qualify for both. Um, Yay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's not and, something I want to qualify for both in, I don't think. <laughs> but I was looking at um, retail vacancies. I thought I'd find some pain in the retail vacancy rates. Surprisingly not. Uh, Isn't that crazy? What, is that just because of the, the, the flood to the suburbs? Or, just, or are you talking about even in the cities, too? The, the retail. I didn't break it down. I just looked at uh, okay. national numbers, so I didn't break it down suburban or uh, urban. I was just, I got enough. I don't need to go looking for trouble, Ryan. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, for offices, the vacancy rate right now is at ten point seven percent. That's the fourth quarter. That's the latest available number. In the third quarter, it was ten point eight percent. So it has come down a little bit. Um, but you've seen the the articles and the numbers. There's this great wall of refinancing that's mm-hmm. going to have to happen in 23, 24, and it's going to get dicey out there. If people and ask me, as they occasionally do, should I be buying some commercial real estate? I say, well, you got to define that a whole lot better if you want an answer. <laughs> and you're going to tell me the geographic market you're talking about, too. <laughs> Nuances matter in this particular case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they kind of do. So, so in. When we talk about the, it's, I, I look at the equity of like what these balance sheets, whether it's commercial real estate investors or the REITs or the, the banks going back to even Silicon Valley Bank, we're like, they're looking at, well, they don't have enough liquidity. And then as these, as they're, as they're forced to refinance, their cash flow is going to be strapped even more with the debt and whatever. The, I mean, I just, I don't know. My head starts to hurt actually. <laughs> I just start to think about it. And then uh, that's why I, then I just pick up your book and go, I like now I've got the manual to figure out how to navigate the waters. But <laughs> <laughs> it is, um, there's going to be some big time pain out there. Um, a friend of mine, though, is um, really big into the medical uh, properties. They're doing great. They're fine. Cash flow is amazing. It really is so far relegated to office space. And when I, I ran the numbers, because I'm a nerd, and the office space amounted to about 14% of total private commercial. So okay. it's not like it's the lion's share of it. So I recite those numbers to myself at night when I start to hyper. Thank you. Right that was exactly why I wanted you on. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I can worry a little bit less. And and as you, as you kind of like pull that thread, the banks holding those, are they more community banks or more the uh, bigger, the bigger banks like JP Morgan? So like, no, it's not the bigger banks. They never got into that. It's 70% of that mortgage money is with uh, regional or smaller banks. Uh, That was their purview. A friend of mine was thinking maybe uh, the life insurance companies were involved, but they only own 9% of those mortgages. So it really is the banks that are 
going to be. Yeah. And those out. are the banks that aren't looking, I mean, as you said, they were tightening up and they're not lending as much. They're the ones that are looking at the cost of deposits being a little bit more. Oof. Well, they got to move up those. That's a very good point though. I mean, if they were to move up those deposit rates, they'd be doing themselves a big favor instead of, uh, running so far down that who wants to have any money in, in there, right? I had a, I had a, one of my business owner friends call me up, Brian, and uh, this person that they knew that um, actually started their own, their own bank, like it was like a couple years ago, and then called them up asking for deposits. It's like, woo. So it's like, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a, a you know, a major desire to get those in for, for the ratios that they need. And so as I think about, you know, covering commercial real estate i get it like as we then go into like the cycles i want to start introducing to the audience more and more to the cycles and the and the and as you look at the different industries and where they might be in because i i, I listened to your guys' segment uh i believe it was about i don't know if it was the one on the commercial real estate but you are also talking about where industrial manufacturing was going and this is all tied into what what I want to continue to pull out of these quarterly episodes with you is like, what can we be doing about it? And you guys have some amazing, like practical tactics in the book about how to be, you know, adjusting accordingly your prices, your contracts and all that kind of stuff. So maybe like kind of just give us an overview again of the cycles for the listeners. I'm going to be beating in their head to, to go get, pick up your guys' books, but then any noticeable sectors or industries that are changing that you guys might be yeah. keeping an eye on? The uh, business cycle, we break it down into four phases, A, B, C, and D, because we're very clever economists. We went with A, <laughs> B, C, and D. <laughs> and an example of a phase A, that's when the rate of change it has reached its low. So the numbers are getting less and less negative as each month passes by. And the trailing 12 months begins to rise also. And... The best example of that is going to be within about one, two quarters, uh, private residential construction. Uh, we're seeing some early signs of life in permitting and in traffic. Um, so we're reaching the bottom over the next three to six months, and that'll be in phase A for a good portion of 2024. This, you know, we, we have a very mild climb. Uh, over the course of 24, 25 in that space. It's, I know some of the major home builders are thinking it's going to really take off. And I'm thinking, have, they must be looking at different data than I am. Because when you look at how many mortgages are in the pocket of these homeowners below 4.5%, where's their incentive to... <laughs> Like, All right. To do anything, right? I mean, right. My, my dad and I is actually looking for a house right now, Brian. And I'm like, the people that you're trying to buy their house for, they would sell their house and buy a house half the price <laughs> just, just at the same monthly payment. So, like, there's no incentive for people to get the heck out of their house at all. Nope. And this is going to be a whole cultural shift, too, by the way. This is a sidebar. Um, the younger millennials are going to have to realize that their first home isn't going to be what you and I had for a second home. Or a third home. They're going mm -hmm. to go back to buying starter homes. But when I mention that to uh, younger people, I, what I invariably get is, shut up. <laughs> oh, no, really. You're going to have to <laughs> shut up. 
I'm not going to get an 1800 square foot home. Hey, they, dude, that's pretty big for a starter home. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you know what? They can go ahead and do that and then end up on Dave Ramsey, like that couple that went viral. Did you see that video? No. Uh, it was like two, two months ago. This couple calls into Dave Ramsey. It was, there was like six million views on this thing and they were like 31 years old and they were almost a million dollars in debt between student. Oh, I know. You should have seen Dave Ramsey's face. He's like, wait, how much? How much is a mortgage? And they were like 230. He's like, what the hell else is there? <laughs> so yeah, like, and he's like, I'm going to put you on a budget of a $30,000 budget between the two of you. So, I mean, you can end up like them or you can actually swallow reality, right? So they're the opposite of what you should be doing with housing beginning to come around and they're in phase A. You asked about the different phases, non-residential construction, new construction, that's in phase B. That's still climbing up at an accelerating pace because it lags housing by two years. And then you have GDP and industrial activity, and they're in phase C, slowing growth. They are still growing, but the rate of rise is slowing. And then eventually they're going to get into phase D, as will the automobile industry uh, by early 2024. And that's where you're in active recession, that you're running below year ago levels. And you, that's where housing is today. And we're waiting for it to stop with the D already and get mm -hmm. up. And that's day. where it, it, it hits the lowest negative and it starts to climb back yeah. up to then to zero. Yeah. And when I, when I thought was so awesome about like when I was uh, going through the chapters of these books about like tactics and strategies to apply as you're, you know, when you were mentioned, even like when you're getting into phase A, like how the pessimism and the, like the dark clouds are still there. But yet, if you look at the data, you should start making moves, you know, hence right. the title of one of, your, one of your other books, right? <laughs> and, yeah. so, and so, um, what I thought was very interesting about uh, like specifically because the inflation in your chapter about how, you know, this is a generation that hasn't seen inflation, me being one of them. I mean, I've done a lot of my own education, but it's only out of, you know, history, not like oh, not, obviously now I'm experiencing it. But some of the strategies you guys were talking about of like how to like maybe there's one particular one that I think was the CPI or there was a couple of the, the different indexes about when you're locking in contracts versus when you're working with your suppliers, kind of the, yeah, the, the, yeah. the mismatch, you want to maybe explain that for the listeners because it's a really, really interesting strategy that I think if you have this data that you guys are pushing out, you can make major moves that, that are oh, going to yeah. change. Inflation can be profitable if you, uh, if you play the numbers right. One uh, facet, though, is you must have a competitive advantage. If you're just a commoditized product or service, then... There isn't a whole lot you can do, but you can still do what you were alluding to. It's based on the fact that the CPI, well, it, it's going to go up. It doesn't go up as high as the producer price index. Okay, So you get your supplier to commit to the consumer price index as a price inflator, and you get your customers to commit to a producer price index. So you get the added margin. So much. Which is like, I think in that example, you guys was like, what, 3% difference or close yeah. to five or what the heck it was. So like, you got a solid spread there between the two. Yeah. And these days, um, clients, business people are smart to add in a labor price index uh, because Commodities can go up, commodities can go down, but your labor is going to be rather relentless. So build in a labor price index. So uh, that labor price index too, I want to uh, pull that thread because you guys, uh, in the book, you were in. it was a well articulated of the difference between like um, 
the, you know, just the printing inflation that, you know, I'd say the masses are obviously aware of because of how much money has been printing the money supply going up. But then you were talking about sticky inflation that the fire that just doesn't stop burning, which has a lot to do with labor uh, growth. Can you explain what you mean by like the quick, the quick inflation versus the sticky inflation and why it's sticky? And then I want to go into then how you guys are talking about how to deal with labor. Um, and, and I'm looking at the clock too, making sure we're, we're good. Okay. Um, what we're going through is an ex excellent example, Ryan. Uh, the Federal Reserve created all this inflation along with the Congress by giving out all the free money and the Federal Reserve obliged them by creating all these I's and O's and you know, ones and zeros and creating all this funny money, right? And voila, you increase demand and you're going to get inflation. So now we have the money supply actively coming down and has been coming down um, going on a year now because they're trying to clean up their own mess. And that's why the economy is slowing down. That's why people are dipping into their savings. That's why the million dollar remodeling projects are going on, but the $50,000 remodeling projects aren't going on. Okay. <laughs> well said. Yeah. So that's, that's the uh, part that they can easily control. What they're also bashing their head against the wall about right now is they're trying to bring down the cost of labor. Now, I don't know if you've seen their pictures, but none of them, I don't think, are going to be in a position to procreate that quickly, that they're going to add people to the to the labor supply. Just randomly right? had about like 80 million skilled millennials to be sitting there for yeah, the computer yeah, science yeah. and aerospace engineering degrees, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what they're trying to do is they're going to slowing down the demand for labor by putting the economy into this recession. But it's only going to be temporary. Unless they're going to keep us permanently in a recession, we are going to rebound. We're going to start wanting to hire more people. In fact, even with all the squeezing that they've been doing, the unemployment rate remains ridiculously low. It's just job openings have come down. Companies mm -hmm. are using attrition to uh, slim down their workforce. But, you know, the high-tech headlines uh, on layoffs, that's, that's a very small nut mm -hmm. in the universe, but it gets a lot of people excited anyways. It, the Bottom line is, if you need a body in your warehouse or you need somebody on that truck or you need somebody wearing that pair of boots to get the job done, they're darn difficult to find. And uh, you're likely going to keep paying them. Well, and, and the, going back to how, like, how you layer on these decisions with the cycles, too, when you were talking about how you know ramping up training programs in that phase A will help you then afford the surplus and then looking at more outsourcing. I mean, you guys just did a, just a fantastic job of talking about how to, you know, re recalibrate your, your, your cost structure. And I think it's something that a lot of people, I mean, what is the, like, when you think about how you all at ITR are viewing data and like the waves in your, you know, it's like, I think about this one story, Brian, uh, I was uh downhill mountain biking in New Zealand and the, the trainer was like, if you look right in front of your wheel, you're totally screwed. Like you're going to hit the brake and you're going to flip over your handles. You have to look 12 feet in front of you. Cause like, by the time you see that it's already happened. Yeah, <laughs> and that's yeah, yeah. The exact, and by the way, one of my friends did that while we were, and he looked right at a cycle. Oh no. And yeah. So I saw exactly what the warning was about. So like when you think about your, you know, you have these different time cycles that you mentioned with different sectors and different leading indicators. If you were to kind of sum up like with the masses, with like, especially with the news headlines that you and I were alluding to last call of how ridiculous most of them are with the clickbait, what is the leg of like what people are viewing versus what's happening? I mean, is there kind of like an aggregate, like 
index of like how like the masses are they like 12 18 months behind or anywhere is from seven to 18 months behind yeah that makes sense that makes sense Um, it's it's not a nice neat number um and the leading indicators and you've mentioned them um they're going to start getting confusing i think to people because there are some uh like the our ITR leading indicator that is beginning to make a, uh, a motion toward rise. Uh, there's the uh, conference board. They have their leading indicators making some rise. So that has some people saying, smart people, well, maybe there isn't going to be a recession. And I think that ignores all the other evidence for the sake of those leading indicators. And what they're not doing is the probability analysis. See, when, when we start to get a hook in the leading indicators, we jump on it and we say, well, that has a 37% probability of actually holding. Mm. We need two more months worth of data before we can assign. Yeah, that's a righteous turn. And that's still going to give people a six-month heads up yep. uh, without giving them any false hope. Based on mm-hmm. One of our own internal leading indicators, uh, the optimizer leading indicator, did just that. That's how we know it's going to happen to some of these other indicators. It went up for two, maybe three months, and then it did a header uh, back down. So, <laughs> just to keep everybody on their toes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the groundhog. The groundhog just did <laughs> Yeah. So there it is. And that optimizer leading indicator leads all the other leading indicators. Got so it. Um, it, it's a really good one of these where you can tell where the wind is blowing long before anybody yeah. else is looking at the flag. Well, and, and there's two uh, to keep us uh, within the time, uh, two kind of final thoughts or questions. One is the example um, you guys were given in your little, uh, I think it was uh, one of your, um, I don't know if it was the trend talks, but like the seven minute thing on Spotify, you were talking about backlog. And I thought it was a wonderful way or a very interesting way that I think the listeners should start to get used to of, you know, of your backlog, how much of the future is it? There was some way of how you guys worded that. You want to just talk about because this is, has to do with making decisions based on this data of like, hey, this backlog, is it, are you cannibalizing your future? Or like, you know, I don't know exactly how, you, well, you know I, what I'm? Yeah, it plays out differently for different industries, different companies, but it, it can cannibalize your own future because people were placing these large orders, right? Because the supply chain was shot. Now the supply chain is back. And what we're seeing is the backlog is officially there, but we're hearing uh, customers are saying, uh, I'm not going to take that this quarter. The order is good. I'm going to take it, Brian, it. but not this quarter. Yep. Down the road, we're going to take yeah. it. And for some companies, they're very good about identifying whether that's a committed order or that was just uh, a bloated order because mm-hmm. of the supply chain issues. And that's really good conversation to have with your customers find out how much of that is real and how much of it is oh, likely i've managed a fleet of salespeople, brian i don't know <laughs> <laughs> like oh that's good that's good yeah you got to get really like you got to really care about your cash flow to really get to the answer to that question <laughs> yeah you absolutely do and and i know we don't have time for it today but next time ask me why i think or we think uh china's best days are behind it and why they're the biggest global threat we have over the next 10 years Ooh, that's a wonderful, wonderful launching off point. Um, do we have time for one last question? Uh, sure. and it just, it's just more of a, a short one. It, I was curious, like as, as I was uh, pick, refreshing myself with the book and like, again, like I said, when we started, 
the fact that you haven't lost your mind is is ridiculously uh, <laughs> uh, a tribute to you because I mean, in 2014, you guys were calling all this stuff. And but like with how janky the five trillion dollar. What does janky mean? I don't, I don't know. Just, I'm just thinking about like how wonky janky. I don't even know what the right adjective over the last three years of the 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 supply chain issues, the all of the stuff, right? If does that impact the timeline of the 2030? I mean, because I know that's primarily demographics that is kind of driving that big, huge thing. Plus, along the, a lot of the benefits that the country has. Maybe we can pick this up with the China conversation. But I'm just kind of curious, kind of getting caught up uh, re- yeah. and refreshed if like we, there's we, a. We looked into that uh, very deeply, Alan and I and Jackie. Um, the answer is no, it doesn't change the uh, timeline. Okay. Uh, because of the demographics are what they are. We thought maybe because the country went into so much more debt, maybe mm-hmm. that would change the timeline. But no, it doesn't. As long as you win the ugly dog contest on the planet, then, uh, <laughs> you can you can get away with it. So. <laughs> I love it. Cool. Well, I I want to respect your time. Thank you so much, Brian. I am looking forward, and I'm sure the audience is, to the uh, answer and some of the commentary behind that that last China comment. But uh, thank you so much for your time, and I appreciate it very much. Brian, it's always great to see you. Thanks for having me on. Take care. I hope you're enjoying this episode so far. I love talking to Brian. I seriously wish I could trap him in a corner and just talk to him for an entire day or week. Um, but I can't do that. So what I recommend you do is go check out the ITR economic updates, the links below. You can sign up for their newsletter, get updates on their 2030 Great Depression, their methodology, their trends talk. I just in go get the book Prosperity in the Age of Decline. Seriously, it's amazing. So thank you everybody for tuning in. And also just a note too, is if you're not subscribed to the Arcona Intentional Growth Weekly Emails, what we're going to be doing is we're actually going to be baking a lot more value into that newsletter. So it's not just an update on the podcast. We're going to be putting a lot more uh, content into the quarterly economic and M&A updates, and then also rolling that into the weekly updates here pretty soon. But we're going to have resources that we are pulling from the Intentional Growth Academy, as well as other resources from people like ITR Economics or Butcher Joseph, who is willing to aggregate some data and give us some information that is also tangible and written or links that is in uh, the newsletter. So if you're not subscribed to the Intentional Growth Newsletter, also go in and do that. So two takeaways, sign up for the ITR Economic Updates, as well as the Intentional Growth Newsletter that is going to be having more of this material into the newsletter as well. Thanks everybody for tuning in and I will let you roll right back into the rest of the interview. Jeff, how are you, sir? Great, Ryan. How are you today? I'm doing good. And I was saying, here we are again. I I like the fact that these are quarterly because I think any earlier would be uh, too much. (laughs) So. Uh, the good news is we got uh, a handful of things that have transpired since our last discussion. Um, something to do with the banking world and the you know interest rates are still going up. And what's that doing to the M and A market? So, in no particular order, is there any uh, any place that you want to start? Because I know last time we were talked about like strategics and private equity firms kind of getting in the same level of you know their appetite and the kind of the valuations things had kind of changed around a little bit from the debt to equity ratios and earnouts, but um, I don't know if you want to start there or any particular place you want to start. Yeah, we can start. Uh, we can start there. I think um, since we last spoke, uh, the Fed raised rates another 25 basis points. Um, so I think, you know, the, the velocity of uh, the 
the interest rate changes have slowed a little bit. Um, and as a result, I don't know that we have quite as much of a drastic change in, um, in just sort of the, uh, the, uh, the, the pricing environment um, in the last several months, as maybe was the case, you know, when uh, throughout the course of 22, when we saw a much larger, you know, rate of change um, uh, with, uh, with the Fed raising interest rates over 400 and, you know, 425 basis. <laughs> I mean, I've years. seen that chart, Jeff, where it's like when Volcker was doing it and all the different times. And then there's the one right now where it's just like straight up cliff pretty much of how fast they did it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's amazing just to kind of see that, uh, how quickly that, uh, that, that rate of change happened. Um, so I think, you know, in the last three months or so, it's been uh, a little bit um, of a slower uh, pace of progression. Obviously there's, you know, continuing, interest in what the Fed will do going forward and how much they might continue to raise rates or maybe if they take a pause. Um, I think at this point, it's given the universe of buyers an opportunity to sort of recalibrate and, uh, you know, kind of rethink um, the way they're approaching value uh, in, the, in the way that um, they might be structuring transactions. You know, obviously, the, uh, the credit markets are a big part of the ability to finance those transactions. Mm -hmm. And, I think we've seen a continuation of um, what we talked about last time, which really is, you know, with these elevated rates of interest and potential recessionary conditions on the horizon, you have a lot of lending institutions that are being very cautious um, about the credits and how much capital they're willing to provide. Uh, obviously, looking very closely at um, the cash flows of underlying businesses and, and uh, really sort of doing diligence around downside scenarios and how much cushion there might be for earnings to deteriorate before uh, covenants become an issue and, and you start to have companies, um, you know, bump up against covenant defaults and uh, it becomes a, a concern for the banks, of course. So that, uh, that all What's very that? much continues at, uh, at, a, at a very much an active, uh, I'd say, uh, uh, you know, active level. So I, which is interesting and given the fact, so I, I'm out of pure curiosity for myself. When I think, when I look at what happened with Silicon Valley bank, Jeff of the mismatch of the long-term holding versus the liquidity that they needed and like how mm -hmm. just with the rates, I mean, like you now have the government and like that is a true bottom of the rate of return of what the 5% coupon rate now or whatever the heck it is. So like, now, how how that's increasing the returns that everybody else needs on these other types of assets as the asset risk you know pool goes up. When I look at commercial real estate and the mismatch potentially of some of these banks that are holding the loans or the real estate investors that have levered that their their equity up and the pricing is now in flux with the revenue, and then you have the private equity markets that are the and maybe I'm incorrectly thinking about this, Jeff, but like the math equations are the same, right? Because each one of those are just different asset classes that have debt underneath them. And as the treasury floor is there, like how was, we, we're not seeing a ripple effect in commercial real estate just yet, other than the refinancing wave that's coming on and the, you know, repricing, but how is that, you know, impacting private equity, the rates of return, the underwriting? I mean, is that, is that having an impact on the conversations behind the scenes? Yeah, certainly cover a number of different things there. I mean, I think, um, you know, generally speaking, uh, you know, it, it, the, the rising interest rate environment and the availability of the credit, um, you know, um, in, in borrowing is certainly having an impact on, you know, the private equity return profiles because to, to be able to, for a lot of these private equity firms to be able to continue to pay certain, you know, elevated, call it elevated levels of pricing, that, that means they'd have to come uh, to a transaction with um, a larger equity. 
uh, position uh, to to be able to support that level of value, and, and obviously that might that might suggest you're going to have a little bit lesser of a return profile if you if you have a little bit more equity uh, in a transaction and less debt. So uh, in order to maintain the same type of return profile that private equities typically try to target, um, you know, it, it likely is going to mean that if if you can't get any uh, additional amounts of bank financing or you know or debt financing on on uh, on a, on a on a company's balance sheet to support a transaction, and you don't want to put in any more equity, uh, then you're, you're going to be talking about prices for that particular asset coming down. Mm-hmm. And so that you know certainly creates a, 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 an interesting dynamic, and in, um, in the sense that you've got a kind of a wider bid ask spread, for uh, lack of a better you know mm-hmm. term, mm-hmm. between the the value that sellers are hoping to get for their asset relative to the price buyers are willing to pay for their asset. Uh, for that asset. And so, yep. you know, uh, it, that in and of itself can create a little bit of a slowdown um, in deal flow just because you've got uh, this dislocation between what, you know, sellers are willing to accept and what buyers can or are willing to pay. Um, and, and, and hopefully what we'll see over time is, you know, seller expectations can either sort of be recalibrated to the new environment that we're living in, or uh, there can be more creative deal structures used to help mm-hmm. support that valuation gap. Um, and, and I think um, there is a potential for that. And we talked a little bit about earnouts in the past is certainly one way to do it. I think there's a um, opportunity to for, uh, for, for buyers of businesses to find capital providers that are willing to be a little bit more flexible in terms of the types of um, amortization schedules that might be used on uh, in, uh, in the debt that's used to support a transaction. So instead of you know front end loading a lot of principal payments, maybe you can back end load some principal payments, okay. or or maybe instead of having current cash pay interest on a loan, you can you can have something like a pick structure payment in kind, uh, which just you know allows uh, for some of those payments to get deferred a little further into the future. Um, in, in the event, obviously, you, you mm-hmm. need to do something that would help from um, the perspective of you know managing potential downside and cash flows or you know. Uh, ways to sort of you know bridge value gap. There's, there's I think a number of different you know uh, opportunities to think creatively to to try and uh, come up with a solution. So, okay, so I love it. Thank you very much for framing that up well. And after I dished you a bunch of stuff, <laughs> so um, so uh, I wanted to throw it, and I don't have the numbers right in front of me, and I I wish I would have. But um, so a friend of mine is an investor in a REIT. A real estate investment trust, and he got a letter, Jeff. And I thought there's just the mat, the how this in, this investor broke down just the basic understanding. What you kind of it's I'm getting at is the bid ask spread, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm going to refer it to real estate. I'm curious like how that reconciles with the the conversation you just had because it was fascinating to me. And I is they were saying like, hey, as a real estate investor, you know, if we were going to sell our assets, like truly, we need to, you know, whatever the return because they already talked about having return that they promised, right? So they they have to, when they're going to ask for a, a sale price, it's based on the promise that they gave. And, but on the buy side, what they, what they were breaking down and bear with me is, is, is they were saying like, if there's a hundred bucks that they essentially as the investment and that's the asset price and the, the cap rate going back with the treasuries being like the 5%, like this has got to be like the 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 buyer has to have a seven and a half percent cap rate or whatever it was in order to make any of it make sense. Where if they buy it below that, they're immediately wiping out their own equity because they can't sell it. Mm-hmm. So there was just this kind of like natural floor yeah. in there 
So yeah. therefore, there was this whole conundrum of like the seller needs a return that they can't get because of the floor. Mm-hmm. And like, and when I how I think about private equity or just any kind of investment in a business, you have the private equity firms that need that return, just like that real estate investment trust. Mm-hmm. But then the founders who are just trying to make generational wealth don't necessarily. They've got a little bit more flexibility. I think maybe the, the overarching is this is this in parallel universe. I mean, is that the kind of the yeah. same conundrum? Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, it, it, you're exactly right. With private equity have, you know, portfolios of companies at some point they need to monetize, right? They mm-hmm. need to, they need to find an exit for those. And and you're right. They went maybe they bought those portfolio companies in 3 4 5 years ago and they went into that transaction with a certain, you know, return profile that they expected and and uh underwrote the transaction to that return profile and now as we sit here today and they're trying to exit um if the values are below what they originally sort of anticipated and underwrote to, um, then you're right. They're not going to ultimately, at the end of the day, realize the type of return profile that that maybe they originally were anticipating, and and uh, and that you know that might mean either they don't transact today, they don't monetize that investment today, they wait till you know um, they wait a few more years for for that exit event, um, or uh, or they just you know take a lower rate of return because they have to um, they have to monetize that investment return capital to their you know, limited investors mm-hmm. or limited partners. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does create a little bit of a, a challenge and a conundrum for sure. Uh, absolutely. Founder owners, to your point, I think are the, are that, that's, that's a, a, a different, you know, sort of cohort of business mm-hmm. owners that might be transacting for different reasons. You know, the founder owners, um, you know, might be looking to exit because they're, they're older. Um, maybe, you know, they're at the point in their lives where, they don't have uh, the, the the next generation of a family member that wants to take over the business. Um, you know, we see a lot of third generation, maybe even sometimes some fourth generation families where that generation, that third and fourth generation, you know, they, they don't really have an interest in continuing to run the family business, right? They have other career aspirations and they have, there's a lot of different career paths available to people these days. And so that, that group of business owners, I think, um, despite the environment we are in currently are more likely to say, well, you know, despite where we are, I still want to transact because what's motivating me to sell my, my business, my asset is something different than mm-hmm. just pure financial return profile. Mm-hmm. Does that, does that probably, uh, it, it make, would make some sense to me that that would be a good thing for buyers out there because if the PE firms are stuck where they can't sell or it's slowing down the deal volume, would that be good for more of the founder-led cohort because there's potentially some more buyers given the age and the demographics and stuff? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, make no no mistake. I mean, there's still a lot of capital out there, right? I mean, there's still a lot of dry powder that investors need to put to work, whether it's held by private equity firms or even like we spoke about last time, you know, strategic companies, right? Operating Mm -hmm. businesses, they have strong balance sheets coming out of, um, you know, 2021 and, and in the early part of 22. And so they've got, they themselves have strong balance sheets. They have a lot of dry powder. And, and, and I think, um, you know, that's an opportunity uh, for founder owners to find buyers. It's a good opportunity for private equity and, and strategics to look at that universe of companies because, um, you know, there are some, some founder owners that are w- willing to transact and want to transact. And with all that money out there, people are still looking for good, high quality assets. So I think there's opportunities to put, put money to work. And and kind of in that vein, when you look at strategics, private equity, and I know uh, you guys at Butcher Joseph do um, 
ESOPs as well. And they're a big player in that. So when you're looking at like valuations, deal structures, and net proceeds, kind of like in those three categories of enterprise value, how the deal structure is work, working, and then the, the, the net proceeds, how are you, are they, is there any shifting as far as how these different types of buyers are comparing against those different levers? Yeah. You know, for a, for a while, private equity was paying, um, you know, really high prices and it was hard for a lot of the other buyers to compete with what, you know, they, uh, uh, the, the, what they could receive if a private equity firm approached them with some um, really attractive offer. I think with private equity uh, um, coming down a little bit on the prices they're willing to pay, as we talked about before, strategics are becoming, again, more competitive. And even the ESOP structure is becoming really competitive again. Um, and I think as we've talked about in other you know, instances, you know, there's some really advantageous tax benefits to um, selling shareholders to sell to an ESOP that allow them to um, potentially defer capital gains on the sale uh, of their of their business if they sell to an ESOP. And as a result, when you think about the net proceeds now, you, you might find that, hey, you could really uh, not only have a competitive um, type of scenario where uh, with, with private equity strategics, um, if you're selling to an ESOP, but you, it actually might be the more lucrative route to pursue with the net tax you know, savings available to you. So right, it, right. It, it is an interesting, uh, it is an interesting dynamic that we're, we're kind of, you know, seeing that, um, the ESOP structure is kind of becoming more in vogue again. Yeah. That sounds word. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and it's, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's interesting that the, the playing field is becoming a little bit more level on these different structures. Mm-hmm. How is, uh, how are the interest rates in the interest rate environment impacting seller notes? on any kind of third-party sale or the ESOP sale? Are the coupon rates going up, I'm assuming, <laughs> along with everything well, else? Yeah, so you would think, right? You would think that that would follow with um, the, the senior banks. If, if the senior banks are raising their interest rates, <laughs> you would think it would reverberate all the way down to the lowest part of the capital stack. But the thing is, remember, you know, there's um, there's only so much leverage you can put on a business and have its cash flow supported. So if the senior banks are getting an elevated rate of interest and, and a larger percentage of the cash flows because the interest costs are going up, it leaves a little less for some of the people behind them, right? So exactly. you, you might see some increase, but it's not to the same degree. Yeah, you can't have like a 7% coupon or 10% coupon rate and then an 18%. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know, if the senior rates banks go up, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, whatever, you know, you, you can't have the same type of increase in, in, in the, uh, the cost of capital that comes behind it. So, but also to your point, like, I mean, that's where the, if you're not paying any taxes, once the ESOPs in, in, in place, you yeah. might have more wiggle room for the, the different capital structure to make everybody's ends meet. Yeah, exactly. And that's where other types of creative type of structured equity, um, structures come into play. I mean, you can have these seller notes that might be accompanied with warrants, um, so that, that allows you to, to have, um, you know, warrants is oftentimes used as a tool to replace a rate of interest. And so you can kind of keep the interest rate low, which reduces fixed charges. Um, if you, if you have some warrants associated with, would you mind breaking those down? We've done quite a few on those in the ESOP mini series and stuff like that we've done, but I, I think warrants can always get more attention because it's a, it's a unique and it, and it can, has the potential to align a lot of the, uh, the stakeholders. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's basically a deferred variable interest rate, you know, I mean, it's, instead of being a fixed rate of interest, um, it's going to be, you know, a, a variable rate that's dependent upon, um, the financial performance of the business. And it's going to be deferred until a later point in time, um, when, when, uh, the, the, the warrant 
uh, can be can be monetized uh, at some point. So there is definitely an alignment with um, the ability of the company to afford um, to uh, to to uh, you know pay out the warrants and the value of the warrants. Um, if the company doesn't perform, you might not have that much value in the warrants. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the company performs really really well. Yeah, the warrants can be worth a lot of a lot of value, but at the same time, it's because the company did well and it can afford to now monetize those warrants because of its you know strength of cash flows and strength of its balance sheet. What I think is such a unique opportunity is because I mean it's essentially kind of like rolled equity because that a lot of times that variable is tied to the the value, right? And you're not having a cash outlay for that. Correct. So like, yeah. um, are you see warrants involved in? third-party deals or PE deals, or is it mainly like the ESOP structure? It's definitely prevalent in the ESOP structure, but it, it's not unique to the ESOP structure, and it wasn't invented in the ESOP structure. It was it was originated outside the ESOP structure in general, you know, um, M&A corporate, you know, M&A environment. Um, and so we do see it. Um, it is common uh, for uh, for um, non-ESOP transactions to, to have some, you know, potential structured equity. Um, I think we're going to see more of it. We've certainly, I think, seen an increased uptick of its usage for the reasons I just stated in this elevated, you know, cost of capital environment and potential um, for, um, you know, um, company earnings to, to maybe be compressed uh, if, if we're looking out uh, in the future with a potential recession uh, that people continuously talk about that, you know, mm-hmm. you got to be prudent and think about. Um, on this note of just kind of the environment, I- <laughs> And I know we're recording this before, what is it, eight days before our politicians can actually have a good conversation with each other, like all joking aside. <laughs> like, so this whole debt ceiling, we don't have to get into the major politics of it, Jeff, but like, I think more of the lens of what, obviously we're showing again that we can't get our crap together, but also that like the US's credit rating is tied to this, which ripples through all of this. Do you, like, Knowing that we don't know exactly how this is all going to unfold to everybody listening and we've recorded this prior to any kind of outcome, but like, what are your overall thoughts and like how this, this, how these, you know, these games impact the credit markets and the valuation in the worlds that you, that you live in? Well, obviously it creates a lot of noise, uh, for, for, for <laughs> one, um, you know, I think, um, there's a lot of popular press that, um, you know, speaks to the uncertainty of what might likely happen. And there's probably some, you know, politicking involved by, you know, legislature legislators around using this kind of as a tool to try to extract other sort of things and have mm-hmm. other motivations sort of attached to it. Um, I mean, clearly, if uh, the U.S. was to default on its debt, that would, you know, change the, the whole perspective of the the creditworthiness of, you know, United States debt and treasury obligations and what have, you know, a, you know profound ripple effects um, on credit markets and value because it would sort of reset, you know, it reset the risk profile for a lot of things. Um, well, on the foundational level. I mean, when you get yeah. the build up, it's a build up methodology. Like, because, I mean, in our training at the Intentional Growth Academy, I, when I'm building, when I'm explaining whack, and it's like the risk free rate. And then, and then yeah. like, and now I'm like, every time I teach that, Jeff, I'm like, I always like hold the jokes. And so, like, I have to like acknowledge right. that, like, this is the build up methodology, but like, we have this, you know, white elephant in the room. Yeah. 
I mean, just think if you have to start talking about, you know, in those 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 conversations, you say you start with the risk free rate, and then someone says, "Well, <laughs> you know, what do you mean it's risk free? <laughs> you know, define risk free." Yeah, right. right. Who knows? Uh, yeah. Right. There are some yeah. elements of risk there. Uh, yeah. Well, it's good to know that. Like, it, it, and I, I think I, there's a, if there's any reassurance that I have in that, it's like it's so detrimental that like i mean it's kind of one of those things where you everybody listening and i hope when we're ported into the future that everything's just fine <laughs> right and it's yeah how, how about uh you know i'm trying to think if there's you know normally what you know anything in the tax world i know there was some tax conversations i think the carried interest got pulled out recently anything worthy of uh noting or keeping an eye on for our next conversation yeah, I mean, there's there's still some talk about the corporate tax rate at the federal level. You you were well aware that several years ago, you know, the government lowered those corporate tax rates to 21 percent. And there's some so some dialogue about maybe that going up a little bit. So we'll obviously have to keep an eye on that. Um, obviously, there's a new, you know, uh, potential. Uh, well, there's a presidential election coming up and could, you know, potentially have the same or a different administration. So, you know, we'll we'll. We'll be watching that, I think, closely, but it's probably a little too early to tell maybe where that's going to go at this juncture. Um, but it's certainly something that I think as, uh, you know, you think through the, the federal government and budgets and, you know, debt ceilings and all that is clearly becomes a topic of of conversation and maybe an area uh, where, um, you know, um, certain legislatures, legislators look to um, maybe uh, increase that back up to help um in uh, other areas of uh, buckets of definitely going to be, it's going to, whether like, however those conversations are going to be happening, my guess is there's going to be a lot of mud slinging both sides. The, mm-hmm. the one question I had for you, Jeff is like, cause like both parties keep throwing this carried interest where they want to get the carried interest out, but then they want to, they want to eliminate it, but then it always gets pulled out at the last second. I was going to ask you like, so if you have a PE firm, which there's obviously tens of, you know, 14,000 or whatever it is right now, where they wrote this investment thesis, they raised the money, they're buying these companies under this model. Would mm-hmm. it like at any given point, like, would it change everything in that current moment? I was always curious of like, if that, if, the, if one of that, if that law got passed for some reason, would it impact all the PE firms going forward? So like when they were to monetize or sell or anything, like would it immediately change? Cause I could think about it. Like, interest rate environment, all these things we've talked about is downward pressure. And that could totally blow up the IRR models that these people have. I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, about your thoughts. I, think it, I think those, those carried interest provisions are really more closely tied to, you know, the, uh, the general partner and, you know, the taxes to the, to the GP. And so, right. um, you know, that, that's going to be a little bit more of a, a personal tax implication. Not towards the LPs. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. A little, a little bit, I think slightly different there. Um, and, and, and obviously, I think when you're talking about uh, the the underlying you know businesses uh, that are being invested in, obviously there's still some you know tax leakages at for each one of those businesses at the corporate tax yep. uh, level, right? So yeah. um, a lot of that comes into play uh, more so than some of the carried interest stuff as you're talking about the underlying investment. Got itself. it. Got it. Um, I'm trying to think. We covered some good ground so far. Is there anything that I haven't asked that I should? You know, we, you, you mentioned a couple things um, that I don't know that we dug too deep into. I mean, clearly, you know, you mentioned commercial real estate at one point, and I, and I think we're just at the uh, the infancy stages of kind of seeing some of the ripple effects of how that's going to play out because um, not only are interest rates going up, and so refinancings are, are happening at, you know, uh, different types of cost of 
financing than maybe anybody anticipated. But I think that that's an area that uh, is going to be interesting to watch just because of the way um, businesses and employees are, are working today. Um, the revenue, and, and, the re- yeah, like you said, the refi is increasing the cost structure, but then the revenues aren't even there. So the valuations have to be readjusted. Yeah, oh. yeah we, we, we work with a lot of companies that are saying that they're, you know, actively revisiting their office footprint. And some of them have already been really proactive at shrinking that office footprint. And so, um, you know, that's something to keep an eye on and see how that reverberates through the economy um, and, and what that might mean, um, you know, for investors and and that could have, you know, some serious implications, I think, for a lot of folks that are really heavily concentrated on, you know, office type of commercial real estate. Uh, well, there's that. And then the banks that hold those notes, man. Yeah. Like, oh. That's the other thing exactly is, is where I was going to segue is, you know, we had you touched a little bit on uh, Silicon Valley Bank. And that was obviously a unique circumstance with I think Brian, uh, Brian actually said poor strategy with poor management executed perfectly or something along (laughs) the lines like that. (laughs) Perfect storm. Um, (laughs) But, but you know, what it, what it has done is obviously drawn a light on that universe of lenders, the regional banks. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's given a lot of companies, um, you know, a, uh, a moment of pause to make sure that, you know, if, if you have a credit partner that's a regional bank, you really understand the exposure of that, um, of that regional bank. Um, and, uh, and so, call out. Not, yeah, not that uh, everybody's running to the exits and removing deposits at the corporate level. I think you hear a lot of that at the, maybe at the personal level, you know, people pulling individual deposits out and moving it over to the large money center banks. But certainly at the corporate level, I think people are, companies are looking at those regional banks to make sure, you know, they understand who the partner is and and that uh, they, they have a level of comfort uh, about the ability of, the, of that partner to continue to be able to support their business on a go forward basis, particularly if you are, or are an organization that, that wants to be, you know, not only managing your working capital and you need the bank for treasury functions, but you want to be active at making acquisitions, right? Is this, is this capital provider going to be there to help you? with providing the capital you need to go out and make those acquisitions of businesses when you want to. And if not, you know, or if you have concerns about that, um, then, um, you know, you need to start a lot of companies thinking about, well, maybe we need to start thinking about establishing relationships, secondary relationships now, so that our ability to make acquisitions and to get the capital in the future when we want to make those acquisitions isn't precluded, um, you know, by the, by the single relationship we currently have. Yeah. And I, such an amazing call out, Jeff. And like, and that's for growth, right? And like, I, I, honestly, man, like, I, I don't know if you and I've dove into this, but this is so hitting home because in 09, when I started in our family business, when we were doing 21 million, our bank had an FDIC covenant because they had a bunch of shit loans from 09, 08, well, 7, 08, 09, all that stuff. And they were forced to get rid of this division and this holding, which our business was in. Mm. So they came in and said, we want you out, but they were making like so much, they were making, we were financing our receivables. We did like, this is, there was a lot of, this is why I'm so passionate about all these <laughs> topics, but like all of a sudden what it was a ripple effect where we had we had a good business, but we had no control over that. And they were like, well, we want you out. And we're like, well, 
They'd already sold our SBA loan. So they were servicing, collecting the fees. They wouldn't refinance us. All the other banks were puckered up. And we're like, we have 50% margins on our service contracts. We have all this, but they were not willing to help because of their own own circumstances that directly impacted us. And I just like, I want to exclamation point, highlight, underlight everything you said, because not only for growth, but like you said, working capital, your line of credit, the, all this stuff, you just, it's you're right. Right. I mean, like, I, what is your thoughts about like uh, entrepreneurs? Like I've always, because of my experience and the people I talk to that aren't from finance that are entrepreneurs, they always found like a hesitation to ask the bank about their holdings. Cause it's like the voodoo behind the scenes, but like, what is your suggestions on like, how to have that conversation? That's a great, uh, that's a great question. I mean, I think uh, hopefully that, um, you know, entrepreneurs have some sort of relationship with the banker um, that, um, you know, they can feel comfortable, um, with this banker asking them some pointed questions, whether or not that, <laughs> that bank will be willing to share a lot of uh, information is a different story. Willing or understands or knows, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, but I think, you know, it's, it's a, it's an important question to ask. I think it's, um, it's a valid question because of the, the great example that you made. I mean, here, you know, um, your, your, your business is, uh, performing, you need the capital and the partner that you've, you know, aligned yourself with is, is, you know, creating some complexities that are sort of outside of your control. And so, um, so I, I, you know, I, I would encourage the entrepreneurs, you know, to certainly ask the question, um, and, and, um, you know, just, uh, continue to hopefully make sure that if, if you're getting good, straightforward answers, great. And if you don't right. feel like you are, then, you know, it's, it's okay to have conversations with other institutions to, to protect yourself in yeah. the event, in the event you need to pivot quickly. Right. And there, there's your, there's your answer. If you're not getting good answers or they're being weird about it, there's your answer that maybe you should start right. having coming. <laughs> Trust your gut a little bit, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, right. what are you telling me here? Why yeah, right. I feel like I'm getting a good answer. Awesome, man. Um, last question for you is, uh, Anything that we should be thinking about between now and our next conversation, anything that you're paying attention to that that would be worth kind of picking up the thread when we talk next? You know, we're, we're watching, I think, um, a little bit at this point about what's going to happen throughout the rest of the year with a lot of our clients on the margin side of the equation. I think that, mm-hmm. um, you know, as we talked about in, in prior instances, uh, as supply chains tighten as inflation sort of reared its ugly head as the cost of raw materials went up as the cost of labor went up you know a lot of companies really didn't have much of a challenge in pushing through a lot of those cost increases to the end user their customers um you know i think we're 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 seeing some uh, companies recognize that maybe they have to be a little bit mindful of how far you can push some of that um and i think that um if to the extent inflation continues to increase or maintain its elevated level and you can't pass through those cost increases, we'll see some margin pressure. I think we have seen some, you know, raw materials costs kind of come down a little bit from the elevated levels. I, we're, we're understanding that from talking to some of the companies that we work with that um, they're starting to see some moderation in the labor, uh, cost of labor. Uh, right. It's sort of stabilized a little bit. So that, that kind of helps. So we're kind of watching that just to kind of see, you know what that might mean on margins on a go forward basis. So we're, we're curious to see how that'll play out over the course of the next quarter, because the demand, at least at this point, seems to still be there. Um, a lot of our companies continue to express, you know, that, that you know, backlog or at record backlogs at record levels. The demand side of the equation is strong, but they're, they're watching kind of the margin pressures a little bit still because we're okay. worried about the ability to continue to 
you know, to, to kind of uh, sustain the, 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 the types of uh, margins that they're coming out of in 22. Super helpful, man. And that, that layers right into when Brian and I were chatting about, um, the, uh, the labor cost. Cause like, this is the, the inflation went from the flash in the pan to, Hey, this is more of a sticky inflation with the, where it's tied to labor and, uh, in the prosperity and the age of decline when Brian and uh, Alan were talking about like when you're doing the cost of living increases and like, you can essentially never catch up to that. So right. kind of watching that but also I was kind of curious is how will the demand continue on all these sectors. So I think it's a great place to to keep an eye on. We'll make sure to pick those back up. We will. Hey, Jeff, this is a pleasure. I appreciate uh, everybody at your team and your guys' uh, willingness to do this. I appreciate it. I think the listeners do as well. So uh, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great to see you again. Yeah, talk soon. Okay, you bet. Take care. John, how are you, my friend? Good, Ryan. How are you? I'm very excited to have this conversation. I'm very good. Uh, and I uh, always enjoy our conversations because, you know, like you're just you just get it, man. I don't know what else to say. I enjoy our conversations because they, they they zig and zag, but it always is fun. And uh, you've got a lot of experience for the for the listeners. in. he's got SBA guy over his shoulder right now with his old license. plate. <laughs> yeah. So uh, John's done a couple of deals in his past. But John, why don't you just give us. Uh, the listeners, a little bit of your background um, and then the the bank that you're at. And then we'll set the stage to some of the changes coming up uh, down the pipe. You bet, Ren. So uh, my nickname is the SBA guy. The, na- the name is John Twing. If you think of the sound a bow and arrow makes, you'll get it just right. Twing. <laughs> um, I've been in banking about 34 years, been doing SBA lending about 21. Um, my primary focus in SBA is M&A, so uh, mergers, acquisitions, basically what SBA refers to as change of ownership. Um, and uh, the thing that gets me out of bed every morning is helping change people's lives. Most of my clients are individuals who are non-owners. They're going to become owners, and that remains really, really fun. Um, booking another loan, yeah, that's part of the process, but that's not the exciting part. The exciting part is that life-changing event for both the buyer and the seller. Um, so, uh, you know, lots of fun, lots of interesting businesses. I spend most of my day looking at financial packages, trying to figure out what I can do on the sell side and on the buy side, getting to know buyers. Um, and, um, I want to, sorry, one, one comment there, John is like, after working with you in various, you know, conversations or looking at deals over the past, you had mentioned something in one of our conversations. You said like, cause, cause you know a lot about M and A, right. But you, then you had said something in the past, John, in one of our conversations that you chose SBA as the tool. So you understand the landscape, but you, you're very good at understanding where you and the tool fit. I just thought that was interesting context. Yeah, the uh, important thing to keep in mind is in this landscape or ecosystem, SBA is one flavor of capital. And that's the term that I like, flavor of capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, each flavor of capital has pros and cons and may or may not be a fit for any given transaction, either the seller, the buyer, the business dynamics, whatever it may be. Um, and SBA falls into the world, of course, of debt. Um, so I go, you know, capital comes in two primary forms, equity and debt. In the in the debt world, I would be one of the flavors of debt. Um, and I believe in specialization. That's uh, hence the nickname. Um, I have great expertise in SBA debt. I do not have great expertise in private equity, for instance. I'm certainly familiar with it and aware of it, understand some of the dynamics, but it's a very different source of capital. So I, I, I do kind of stick to my lane and, and keep my expertise there. 
I love it. And you found a new home recently. Why don't you just give us a little bit of the background of where you're at right now and then okay. kind of what the, the, the typical structure is of the SBA as the, what was the current flavor? Cause we're going to talk about how the flavors maybe changed a little bit. <laughs> yes. Um, so I'm, I am at Live Oak Bank. Uh, Live Oak Bank has been the number one SBA lender in the country by dollar volume last five years. Um, and in the industry that I'm in and my specialty, Live Oak has uh, what I call a gravitational pull. So I spent 28 years at Wells Fargo. That's where I really grew up in my SBA career. Spent a few years at a, at a regional and local bank, um, but have known Live Oak and the folks at Live Oak for a long time. And uh, Live Oak is the only bank in the country that is really dedicated to and driven by the SBA 7A loan program. Um, it was really the primary mission of the bank uh, from its origination. So it's when, when you're an SBA specialist like me, being at a bank where SBA is normal and not weird, it's really nice. And, and, and I had uh, mentioned um, before we hit record that you know, Live Oak, and for what I gather, they're even more, they're progressive and innovative enough where they're working with like family officer, wealthy individuals and pairing them up with like the acquisition entrepreneur space, which I know you play a lot in. You didn't say that phrase, but our friend Walker Diable kind of coined yeah. the term and really trying to get deals done. And whether if, if it gets outside the SBA or if there's other capital that can be involved, you guys are helping people actually just get the deals done. Yeah. Yeah. We are certainly an SBA driven lender, um, but yes, M&A is our space. Um, we look across, uh, you know, all kinds of industries. We have a very active searcher group. Um, so that's, you know, um, uh, that's a very active part of our practice. We also have uh, Live Oak has a dual strategy in the marketplace. We have what we call vertical lenders that specialize and have expertise in a particular industry. And they lend nationally in that industry. And then we have folks like myself. I'm a generalist. I have a little bit of a geographic focus. I'm here in the Twin Cities, but I can lend nationally. And my focus is M&A. Um, so in that space, we have a team of about 38 lenders that are generalists and lending across industries. So we have both a vertical and a horizontal over it with the, us generalist lenders. Awesome. Um, so let's let's uh, set the stage because we're going to be talking about what's at the forefront of potential of the change. But why don't you just give us uh, the general framework, John, just to get everybody on the same page of SBAs, kind of the constraints, the typical you know, up and down the checklist of how they work and where they fit from. Uh, uh, and then we can go into what might be changing. Yep. So we'll talk a little bit about um, SBA overall, but one important thing to know, I think of buyers in terms of what's their kind of profile. My buyers are what I call people. So in other words, my buyer is not necessarily an entity or an organization or a fund. It's a person. Uh, it's somebody who may be, for instance, a corporate refugee. They've had a long, successful corporate career. They now want to own before you know before their their career sunsets. Um, it may be an, uh, an entrepreneur who has owned businesses before, or it may be an entrepreneur who owns a current business but wants to expand. My business is typically a person. Um, for instance, in private equity, the business the the buyer is a fund. Might have a sponsor. Might be the fund itself. Um, the buyer is an organization. In strategic, the buyer is an organization. Now, some of those strategics I can fund with SBA. Some strategics might not need me. Strategic being, i.e., a business that's going to mm -hmm. buy a similar or, or complementary business. And, um, that, and that, well, that'll generally get because they get to the, the either the size is too big or they can leverage a conventional loan because of the cash flow that they got, etc. Yeah, got it. Based on, based on their balance sheet and strength. Some strategics are going to look at me and my solution and go, oh, we don't need that guy. So mm -hmm. the key is, does the 
does the source of capital fit the buyer's needs? Now, some of the changes that are going on in SBA SOP or standard operating procedures are going to uh, liberalize a little bit of that. So SBA might be a fit more often than it was previously. Um, so a, a, one other thing to keep in mind, uh, important thing to keep in mind with an SBA loan, um, unless it's an ESOP where there's no owners over 20%, an SBA loan is always going to require a personal guarantor. Um, and that's where private equity funds and some strategics, they say, no, 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 we really want non-recourse debt, recourse being a personal guarantee. Oh, but um, personal, but what personal guarantees aren't in the 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 hit list for a PE firm. <laughs> so, so the uh, in the SBA world, that's you know, I would say that's a first call conversation. By mm-hmm. the way, we're going to have your unlimited personal guarantee. If it's more than one owner, going to be joint and several guarantee, um, and that guarantee may be collateralized with a lien on a home, for instance. So that does make it a different form of capital, but it makes it a great one for people who want to buy. And I can also lend at higher leverage than, for instance, senior debt on a PE deal would. So mm-hmm. SBA has the downside of the guarantee, but it has some upside as well. Um, and in terms of size, SBA maximum is $5 million for a specific borrower or affiliated borrowers. Um, but that doesn't mean the transaction's deal size is limited to $5 million. We often play in the 5 to $10 million range, and we're combining both SBA and conventional bank dollars via what is referred to as peri pursue or shared lien position or combination financing. So for, for me, that 3 million to 10 million enterprise value is really the target um, driven by SBA, but often with conventional bank dollars uh, in addition. And, and the SBA loan has at the current moment has the change of ownership stipulation and then uh, correct. And then the, um, and then how much seller finance you kind of want to give kind of like the, the kind of combo deal structure limitations kind of situation as far as um, what is ideal right now? Sure. You bet. So, so some things are definitely changing, which is exciting. Um, so SBA, uh, Ryan, as you mentioned, this falls into an acquisition falls into what SBA refers to as a change of ownership. So in other words, the ownership of the small business enterprise is changing from one owner to another. Um, there's there's always been quite a bit of regulation in the SBA standard operating procedures about how that happens. Some of that is changing pretty fundamentally. Um, so for my entire SBA career, when an outside buyer is buying into a business, it has to be a 100% change of ownership. So that just changed here recently. Uh, partial buy-ins are now allowed, which is a pretty seismic change in the SBA world. Um, now, figuring out how exactly lenders will adapt and adopt that, that's going to kind of be the trick. But the other thing to keep in mind, for instance, on that on that item, which is probably one of most interest, um, if a seller sells 50% of the business, they're still going to be retri- required to personally guarantee because that SBA rule of any owners of 20% or more will be required to personally guarantee that rule is still in effect. So I I think I don't think of the partial buy-in as a partial buy-in. I think of the partial buy-in likely as a 81% plus buy-in scenario because most lenders are not going to want to personally guarantee their own liquidity. So um yeah cuz you would be getting some capital but you're just <laughs> I mean how is that any different than refinancing and pulling a bunch of cash out, right? Well, it, it, it starts to look and feel a bit like a recapitalization. Mm-hmm. Um, from my personal point of view, most folks in my world, when they're selling, their desire is to highly reduce or eliminate risk related to the ownership of the enterprise. If we fund somebody and they're 20, still 20% or more ownership and they're required to guarantee they haven't really eliminated any risks, risk or taken chips off the table, so to speak. 
Mm-hmm. What I find fascinating about this opportunity, John, is that like if like in your world, and maybe this might be interesting as you um, as you observe your clientele potentially start to evolve a little bit too, because I mean, I just think about the partnership buyouts that I've personally been through. Like, I still want to be doing this, but it would be nice to like, instead of finding someone that has a bunch of capital, they could come in and personally guarantee with me to grow together at the same time. So like, you kind of may change the design, maybe back to your point of the tool, it's fixing a couple of different other solutions out there or problems out there. And it it solves, this does solve one other big problem. Something that we've always struggled with in my world is articulating the transition and, a, and for businesses that are larger or more complicated, articulating how a business ha- would transition in 12 months was the old requirement. <laughs> right. S- SBA SOP previously required a seller to exit as an owner, officer, or key employee within 12 months. Um, well, as an officer and, and, and owner, day of closing. Um, so we always had to focus on 12-month transition periods. That requirement for the seller to exit is now gone. So suddenly the window is open that for businesses where the seller, their importance to the operation and or just their desires are to stay with the business for a period Mm -hmm. of time, that's now possible. Um, Now, the one thing I I do like to remind people is that SBA rule of, hey, if you're under 20%, you don't have to guarantee. Well, you don't have to, but a bank could also require it, even if you're less. So for instance, if I go to the bank with a business plan where the seller is still key to the ongoing operation and success of the business, but they're 19%, the bank could certainly still say, hey, that's great. By policy, you're not required to, but because of the credit dynamics, you are required to guarantee. So there's two parts of that that story to tell. That's uh, good to know. And I think what for the listeners in too is, so John, we talk a lot about uh, in the intentional growth um, framework is separating ownership from leadership and the SBA up until this point was forcing both of those to be transacted and transitioned at the same time. So a lot of times I'm saying you have to separate those. However, the way that the policies work, even though they are different things, they were being forced to be done together, which I find such a great opening up of options. Cause like there are people that just want to take some chips off the table, but they might want to work part-time because they love it. They love their community, their people. And it's like, well, let them have a salary and work in the business if they want to. And what was the, what was the rationale before with that? Uh, well, I can explain what my, what my interpretation was of it. Yeah, I know you weren't at the design phase, but. <laughs> but, well, but now with, with some of the new SOP, I go, Hmm, was that a right interpretation? The way I've looked at it for my last 21 years is that was SBA's way of telling the marketplace SBA as a source of capital is really geared toward relatively simple, closely held businesses that can effectively transition in 12 months. Hmm. I always say SBA is not saying, excuse me, that those other transactions aren't good deals. They're just saying, hey, SBA is not the right flavor of capital for a a business that's going to need a three-year transition or that has other dynamics that complicate that picture. Um, I always go, you, uh, we like to boil it down to SBA's mission. From my point of view, SBA has two primary missions to preserve the jobs of the primary entity that we're talking about, this, the small business enterprise, and to preserve the income tax basis that that, that that drives. So to me, SBA's policies always reflect that mission. Their mission isn't really to give a seller a liquidity event. It's to protect those jobs and that income tax stream. Um, but there, I do think we're getting um, more creative ways to do that. 
And um, the other thing that I like to do is I like to put give the business a, a seat at the table. Because a lot of times when I'm putting together a loan package, the one of the questions I ask myself and the other participants is, what would the entity say about what we're doing? I love it. Does it make sense from the business's point of view? Um, is the leverage right? Is the working capital structure right? Is the ownership and management structure appropriate? Um, how does the business feel about this? Or is the business go, hey, wait, you guys are putting me in a jam. Mm -hmm. That's a way I think that always helps clarify, oh, then SBA policies kind of make more sense in that light. So is uh, um, when you're stacking an SBA with other forms of capital, do the same stipulations apply? Uh, yes. So SBA policies really always apply. Okay. So let's talk about, let's touch on one of the new policy items in SOP. And, and so it's now in, in, in SBA, SOP, Standard Operating Procedure, but banks are still trying to figure out, hey, what exactly will this look like? So SBA has changed the equity requirement so that uh, seller financing used to have to be on 10-year standby to count as equity. And it could be a maximum of half of the 10% required equity. So you might have seen that out in the marketplace. A lot of people kind of advertise that five and five, 5% 5 buyer cash, 5% seller financing on full standby for 10 years. That has now changed. So SBA has liberalized that standby period to 24 months. And SBA has also said, hey, if the business can support the debt with debt service coverage, um, and the and it's on interest only. Um, seller financing on full standby can be up to seventy five percent of the of the required equity of ten percent. So in other words, in theory, a buyer could get in with two and a half percent equity and and seven and a half percent equity on twenty four months standby, and there's your equity requirement. So the question becomes: You've got an overlay. You've got SBA SOP. You've got bank policy. Well. Are banks really going to leverage deals at 97.5%? Especially given the last few months and part of this uh, quarterly update. I know we've already discussed Silicon Valley Bank quite a few times, so it'll be interesting to see what these bank policies are. Um, before we move on to then the bank policies, because I think this will be a good lead-in, John, as far as like how what it, how are they going to be interpreting this and what is the process for them to actually consummate this? Right. Can you shed some light or just get everybody back up onto the same page as far as like you have a bank that does the underwriting and then what is the what is the relationship with the government in the SBA? Because I think that'll help give some insight as far as how they're interpreting this going forward. You got it. So uh, the, what I tell my clients is the way to think about it, US SBA is just a big insurance company. It's really all they are. Um, so SBA isn't, isn't making the loan. The bank is making the loan. SBA isn't documenting the loan. The bank is documenting the loan. SBA isn't funding the loan. The bank is funding the loan. And this is specific to the SBA 7A program. Um, so it's really a bank loan with an insurance policy from US SBA. And it's done with the characteristics and dynamics of SOP. Uh, and then the bank buys an insurance policy from US SBA. If there's a default and liquidation, that insurance, the bank goes then goes back to US SBA to basically uh, ensure that loss, a portion of that loss, typically 75% for a standard SBA loan. Um, so I always tell folks, even though I'm the SBA guy, I don't deal directly one-on-one -on -one with US SBA. Plenty of folks at the bank do, but my borrower doesn't and I don't. Um, and the key is, first of all, does it make, does the transaction make business sense? Will it make credit sense to the bank? 
and will it and can we um, have it meet SBA policies? Mm-hmm. Um, so people tend to worry too much about SBA or the SBA. Um, most good SBA lenders are preferred lenders. They're approving deals with their preferred lender authority. So we go to US SBA, we put everything into their system, we get a loan number back, we now have an SBA approval, but there's not a human on the other side looking at the deal and approving it unless you go GP, the general program. Um, but through preferred lender, we're, we're doing really all of that. I mean, really, it, it's acting just like the, <laughs> so in quotes here, the FDIC with the 250K, right? They're, they're made in. Is that and that's impacting the the risk profile of the loans right. of the bank, right? So how they're underwriting, how they're taking their risks and putting the risk based on their portfolio, it's going to matter because then they can have their portfolio organized in a different way, given the fact that the SBA is backing that percentage of the the, the loan. Yeah, an SBA loan is essentially a credit enhancement that allows banks to put more capital into the market at better terms. And when I say better terms, I mean easier repayment for the borrower, being the company. Mm-hmm. When a bank has to fund goodwill conventionally, uh, it'll often use a shorter amortization, five to seven years, and it very well may want some collateral, either from the business or the owner or both. In the SBA world, I can fund a goodwill. Tra- I can take a service business where the purchase price is 100% goodwill. I can fund it on a 10-year term. Um, and if there's collateral available, I need to take it. But if there isn't any and everything else works, I can still say yes. Um, so Which SBA is- allows lenders to put more capital into the market on easier terms for borrowers. And, and, and when I say that you get, you get it, like when, when you and I first met years ago, John, I mean, you were funding these e-commerce and SaaS businesses where you're, it's, you're like, it's a domain and it's a thumbnail at closing. <laughs> and it's, it's like, yeah, it's a cash flowing asset. Like what a concept, right? <laughs> yeah. And the, um, you know, to, um, uh, banks are good at understanding business models that can be replicated. Um, where they have experience. I do sometimes get folks who have, you know, um, if I'm on my third discussion of how a biz- how does a business work and I still don't understand it, um, it's probably not a great SBA candidate. And I do see some of those. Um, but even, yes, even e-commerce, you know, I go depending on the characteristics. Banks care a lot about, for instance, revenue streams. So whether you're a manufacturer with an 80% customer concentration with your, your primary client, or you're an e-commerce provider when you're 80, 90% through Amazon, well, those are both risks. Mm-hmm. Banks don't really like those kind of risks, but certainly e-commerce as a business model, hey, that works great. As long as you've got a diversified stream of revenue, we're going to like that. Same thing with manufacturing. Diversified okay. customer base, we like it. And, and what I, just before we move on, like highlight, exclamation point, underline circle, because like what you just, you could replace the word bank. Any investor wants it. <laughs> It's sustainable, predictable, transferable cash flow into the future. And if we think it's goofy, it's probably goofy, right? I mean, it's just like, I'm, I'm happy that the world's kind of getting back to a little of the common sense that uh, I think will do us all real good. So what now as we kind of go towards when you say that you have the SBA SOP that's out, but now you have the banks like you had just re- referred to are now they have to underwrite this stuff because they're the ones doing the deals, making the loans, even though the, 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 the quote unquote insurance policy is backing that portion of it. So where is it at right now in this process? So the, the SOP came out, what's, what's the conversation happening and what do we, how, do, how should we be observing the for, going forward movement? Great question. Um, so a couple things to know. 
So first, there were some regulatory changes, kind of sequence of events. Then those regulatory changes became SOP, Standard Operating Procedures, that just came out from USSBA here very recently. Um, now banks are interpreting those new SOPs. So, so again, it's the overlay, USSBA SOP, over, then banks put their overlay of their bank policy on top of that. So in other words, we got to find transactions that meet both. Mm-hmm. Um, and banks won't always go to the exact right to SOP. And every bank's going to be a little different in terms of interpretation. Um, so the key question is, you know, to me, is the bank credible? Does it really understand SBA? Um, how deep is its expertise? And um, how will it choose to interpret that? Because part of where the rubber meets the road is downstream. If you do an SBA loan and there is a default and the bank takes a loss three years from now, hey, how did we interpret that policy today? Because we're trying to um, use that insurance policy three years from now. Um, so some of these things like the partial buy-in, I think the solution on that looks pretty straightforward. Um, you know, mechanically, how's that going to work? Um, how's that, how will it be documented? Um, some of that looks pretty straightforward. Um, one of the other things that changed recently is affiliation. Affiliation conceptually used to be either via ownership or control. So in other words, if I owned a company and then you and I were partners in a company, um, were they affiliated? Before that was about both control and ownership. Now that's just about control. Mm. Well, for instance, that's going to have a big impact in the franchise industry. Um, it used to be that every all the franchises, franchisors had to be on the SBA registry if they wanted to be eligible for SBA funding for their franchisees. Um, that's no longer the case. The SBA franchise registry, we expect, will go away. And now there is no affiliation via control. So franchisors and franchisees are not affiliated unless there's a, an ownership or typically 51% ownership, um, you know, in, in the structure. Interesting. So, yeah. So affiliation has gotten much clearer. Um, the, uh, something else uh, in, in liber- most things got liberalized. One thing actually became more restrictive. Um, the uh, SBA 7A expansion program in the expansion program, when we've got an existing or strategic operator, they're acquiring another business or they're expanding to another location. Previously, we've been able to finance those at 100% loan-to-value. In other words, we can finance the whole project with no equity. So a fair number of my acquisitions actually have no equity component at all because it's an expansion, mm-hmm. as long as cash flow supports it. Important to know. <laughs> yeah. <Yeah>. Asterisk. <laughs> Good footnote. <laughs> SBA did come back. Now, that's always been we, – we've always had to articulate that that was an expansion of their existing business – but for instance, it could be a vertical integration. Um, now, SBA has made a more more formal definition of expansion, and it has to be within the same NAICS code. It has to be with identical ownership, and it has to be um, in the same geographic area. So the expansion program actually got pulled back a little bit, where a lot of these other things have been a liberalization. Um, so across all of these issues, banks are thinking hard about, hey, what does this mean? And how do we overlap this with our existing policy, with any proposed changes to our policy, and with the underlying concept that SBA always expects, which is that we make a prudent loan? Mm -hmm. Because that's the other thing I like to remind people. You can take all of these policies, um, and sometimes you can come up with something that really doesn't sound very smart. So the the foundation this all lays on is the, the lender still has to prove to US SBA that they made a prudent loan. 
Um, so that's the uh, it, I mean, even, just, I, just to like go back to what I said earlier, John, let's just all use our common sense, right? right. <laughs> like we need, and like, I, I understand the expansion, like, yeah, that might be restrictive for a good person with good common sense. But my guess is like, I mean, I'm sure over the last three, four years, you got people in manufacturing that are expanding into NFTs, <laughs> you know, like it, it, actually I shouldn't have said that's so loosey goosey because I actually have a client that actually did that with a really good business model because they're creating physical MNFTs. But anyways, you get my point. But like it's just layering the common sense that the cash flow has to service all of this and has to provide a return for everybody. Yeah, it's one of those things where we've always had to articulate that it was that it was re- related, not only related, but closely related. But for instance, didn't <clears throat> didn't necessarily have to be the exact same NAICS code. Now mm-hmm. it does. Um, so some of some of that um, is saying, you know, and some of that might be some feedback to the lending community to say, hey, when you're using expansion, we want you to make sure it's truly an expansion of the existing enterprise with the same ownership in the same geographic area. Um, All of it. Yeah. Um, so uh, as I know, we're getting short here uh, on time. I'm thinking, uh, so use cases, John, um, like I, I, maybe we could tee, uh, tee this up for as this unfolds a little bit more, having you back on kind of like, hey, this is exactly how people are unfolding, how this is how ba- banks are seeing it. And these are the use cases that are popping up. But I, I mean, I could even see this being a, a huge game changer for the lower market, which is 95% of companies under 5 million in revenue where the cash flow from operations could not service the SBA loan, pay the taxes and the owner. I mean, the whole math equation, you and I, when I was looking at buying a company years ago, it was like, these, the numbers just don't work on any of these things. However, internal buyers that are the executives, other people could come in and there's actually a facilitation now that might mathematically work. Correct. So the, um, you know, the, uh, the, to me, the partial buy-in is, is significant, is a significant change. Um, the, uh, it doesn't necessarily change some of the underlying fundamentals. Um, but, uh, one of the things that for a lot of my, what I call external buyouts, for instance, working capital creates a new burden on the business. Most of those in the market that I'm in are structured, you know, either they're structured where the bank is funding the working capital or networking capital is negotiated into the deal. Um, but if you've got if you've got a seller remaining, um, there's uh, requirements around even if it, you may be able to leave existing debt in place, for instance. You may be able to leave, you know, uh, how's the working capital going to be treated? So in terms of how do you creatively get to a solution that serves the interests of the seller, the buyer, the entity, mm-hmm. and hopefully the lender gets repaid with some interest. <laughs> so I go, <laughs> the, um, uh, the art of the deal, I think, has gotten a little more wiggle room. A little more elbow room for for us folks to create solutions that that people think are a good idea. Awesome, John. This is uh, super needed. I'm excited to see how these uh, uh, these the, the new flexibility comes in because I mean I think this is going to be good timing for the facilitation of. 90% of the marketplace that needs to transition at some point. Um, I, I definitely want to extend the invitation to come back on as you're sure. understanding new, uh, your, you know, Live Oak, but all the other banks as you're hearing what's going on, what are the use cases? And then, you know, how are things actually getting done? I would love to have you back on. But um, the last uh, question I have is where, where can people find you? What's the best place to reach out and to follow you? You bet. Um, I can be reached at john.twing at liveoak.bank. Awesome, John. It, it, Hit me up with an email or on LinkedIn um, and just search. If you just Google SBA guy, I guarantee you'll find me. <laughs> and and I, like, I don't know if this is still the truth, but you always said, man, I like to look at deals. So we got to just start talking. <laughs> and, yeah. and you you don't say that just loosely. Like you actually mean it. That's what I do all day is look at deals. 
Thank you so much for coming on the show, John. Thanks, Ryan. Well, if you're still paying attention, you're probably thinking, oh my gosh, that was a lot. Now, what do I do first? At the end of the day, all we have to make sure that we're focusing in on is creating future sustainable, predictable, and transferable cash flow. The more sustainable, predictable, and transferable our future cash flow is, the more our company's going to be worth, the larger the asset value will be, and the more choices we will have to do whatever we want, work with whoever we want, think about whoever we want. And the way we build a valuable asset that has sustainable future cash flow is to figure out what's going on in the future. So incorporating things like the ITR economics, leading indicators, the rates of change, so we can understand the things that we can't change or can't manage like the economy, all those different areas that ITR talks about, they talk about the lead time of what that indicator means, whether it's four months, 12 months, 18 months. So you can start making moves based on your business cycle and the things to come. Then you can focus on operational things to de-risk your cash flow and increase the sustainability of it. And then you can figure out the best way to fund it. Hopefully they're in line with the equity growth that you want. So go check out the ITR free economics update. Make sure that you subscribe to the intentional growth newsletter as well, because we're going to be enhancing that, like I mentioned. And if you've not filled out the intentional growth financial scorecard to give you an intentional growth score on how well you're running your company like a financial asset, make sure to do that as well. All three of those links are in the show notes below. Thanks everybody for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this. And if you find value in this, send it to a bunch of your entrepreneur friends who will most likely find value in it as well.